What is up, Iwu crew? Today we will be discussing a chilling case of murder, one that is made all the more disturbing because it appears to have occurred at random with no known motive. Today's case is all about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. It is the 1980 Mahuba murders. Our story begins in Winnemucca, Nevada, on the evening of December 1st, 1980. Around 4.30 p.m., a local resident of northern Nevada by the name of Robert Schott filled up the tank of his truck before hitting the road. In the process of getting gas, he met a lanky 23-year-old young man who introduced himself as John, a musician from Hollywood, California. John mentioned in their casual conversation that it was his goal to get to Reno to find a job in the music industry, but he didn't have a car to get there. Robert Schott decided to lend a helping hand to this charming stranger. Though he was not going all the way to Reno, Robert offered John the opportunity to join him on his drive to Imlay, Nevada. John graciously accepted, and the two men hopped inside of Robert's truck, intent to set off southwest onto the infamous Interstate 80. Once inside the truck, John's energy began to change. He shifted his weight uncomfortably in the passenger seat next to Robert. His eyes began to flip nervously back and forth between the bed of the truck and the rearview mirrors. Robert did his best to show John that he was not a threat, nor was he concerned by the odd way John was acting. John, though strange in mannerisms and comments, was not aggressive in any way toward Robert. However, his actions grew increasingly weirder as they continued their way down I-80. At one point, Robert recalled that John started to speak in what sounded like riddles. Unprovoked, John mentioned to him, You may not believe it, but I am a good American. You may not believe it, but I am on your side. I would fight for my country. Once the two reached Emlay, Robert had grown less fond of John's company and politely remarked that John would have to find another ride to Reno if he still wished to go there. As Robert Schott abandoned the stranger who claimed to be named John, he had no idea just how close he may have come to death. The next day, December 2nd, 1980, John was wandering aimlessly along a road near Mahuba Canyon when he was noticed by a man named David Hartshorn, who was parked across the street. Hartshorn was a geologist who had been working at the Mahuba Hill Mine just 23 miles west of Imlay. As he needed to head into work, Hartshorn offered a ride to the lone stranger before him, just as Robert Schott had. The lanky, aspiring musician once again graciously accepted the offer, but this time, when he introduced himself to Hartshorn, he said his name was Teepee Fox. Though Hartshorn found the name odd, he assumed it was simply a stage name for the young musician. The two drove out toward the Mahuba Hill Mine in a rather peaceful silence. Hartshorn offered the obviously parched T.P. Fox one of the two cans of 7-Up he had purchased in the morning. T.P. enjoyed the can of soda 
as the two of them drove into the Mahuba Mountain Range. At some point during the drive, Hartshorn began to notice strange behaviors in TB, just as Robert Schott had. Much in the same way he had done on his drive to Imlay, T.P. began to talk in circles. Hartshorn recalled T.P. exclaiming that somebody is shooting rockets and one of these days it will hit my pyramid and blow me up. Once Hartshorn's truck pulled into the lot at the Mahuba Hill Mine, the two strangers parted ways. Waving goodbye and watching as the strange T.P. Fox wandered off with his half-finished can of 7-Up, Hartshorn was unaware of what the strange, lanky musician was truly capable of. T.P. Fox, whose real name was actually Mark James Rogers, was an aspiring actor from Hollywood with no real direction in life. After hitchhiking throughout northern Nevada and ending up in Pershing County on that fateful day in December, he had no real plans. He wandered aimlessly around the area near the mines for a while until he began to grow hungry. Being wholly unfamiliar with the seemingly desolate area, he kept walking until he ended up on the remote property of the Strode family who owned the nearby Mahuba Hill mine. Knocking on the residence's door, no one answered, but Rogers found the door unlocked when he tried the handle. Rogers let himself into the house uninvited. The home was large enough to house a few people, and the contents of the refrigerator and cupboards indicated that was the case. Guided by the growling in his stomach, he shuffled through the kitchen in search of something to eat. He found a can of beans in one of the Strode's cabinets and helped himself to it. The coffee pot had been left on from the family's breakfast, so Rogers poured himself a cup. He sat alone at the head of the Strode family's dining room table and enjoyed his simple meal in the comfort of a total stranger's home. It is unclear what motivated him to choose to stay in the Strode's house instead of leaving after he had eaten, but nonetheless, he made himself comfortable. Rogers rifled through cabinets and sifted through drawers invading the spaces that belonged to Emery and Mary Strode and their daughter, Miriam Treadwell. In his snooping, Rogers came across a pistol in one of the dressers in the master bedroom. He slipped the pistol into the waistband of his jeans and made his way back into the kitchen. There he picked up one of the butcher's knives from the counter and returned to the master bedroom. It was there that he decided to wait. Not long after Rogers had let himself into the Strode's house, the three residents returned home. Around 1 p.m., Rogers heard the muffled sound of chatter as 71-year-old Emery Strode, his 72-year-old wife Mary, and their 41-year-old daughter Miriam Treadwell entered the house. Rogers had ensured that nothing was left out of place, and so the family had no idea that they weren't alone or that they were in any danger. Little did they know, Rogers was hiding in their home, waiting for them to return. Mary Strode was the first to head toward the master bedroom. From the other side of the bedroom door, Rogers waited until Mary stepped fully into the room 
before he lunged at her. Knife first, Rogers dove toward Mary and stabbed her in the back. He stabbed the butcher's knife so forcefully that it managed to break two of her ribs. Roger removed the blade from Mary's body as she began to scream in fear and pain. Responding to his wife's cries for help, Emery rushed into the couple's shared bedroom. Upon entering the room, he was faced with a wild-eyed Mark Rogers who held a blood-covered knife. Realizing the blood was that of his wife's, Emery charged at Rogers. The two men were momentarily entangled in a struggle until Rogers used the knife to stab Emery in the back. In agony, the old man lost his grip on Rogers. Rogers took Emery Strode's moment of vulnerability as an opportunity to bury the butcher's knife into his chest. The impact of the blade killed Emery instantly. While the scuffle between Rogers and her husband ensued, wounded Mary had miraculously managed to crawl along the bedroom floor until she reached the corner of the room. It was there she had been cowering in fear when Rogers raised her husband's pistol and shot her in the chest, killing her. Rogers then dragged Mary's lifeless body across the bedroom floor and propped it on top of Emery's before exiting the room. From the living room, Miriam had been endlessly calling her parents' names, waiting for a response. Miriam had just been fitted with a glass eye and was nearly blind in her other eye, so she had a hard time understanding what was happening. In addition to her issues with sight, she was also using a leg brace, which made it difficult to walk, let alone run. Rogers easily overpowered her as she struggled to free herself from his grasp. He used a nearby electrical cord to tie her hands behind her back before forcing her down onto her knees. Using minimal effort, Rogers pressed the pistol to her spine and fired once, killing her in a cold-blooded execution. Rogers dragged Miriam's body into the master bedroom and piled it on top of her parents' bodies. For no clear reason, he then fired a shot into Emery's chest, despite the fact that he was already deceased. In a half-hearted effort to hide the bodies, Rogers ripped the comforter off of Emery and Mary's bed and draped it over them. Blood began to soak through the fabric almost immediately. Leaving the remains of his victims to rot in the home's master bedroom, Roger swiped the couple's keys off of the floor where they had been dropped during the commotion and rushed out of the house. Rogers led himself into the Strode's metallic blue pickup truck and sped off toward the general direction of the mines. Several miners in the area saw a scrawny man driving around rather recklessly in the Strode's recognizable vehicle, but did not question it. That is, until Rogers had started firing the stolen pistol in the direction of a local mine mechanic named Ray Horn. Luckily, Horn wasn't hit, and he continued on his way down the country road near Mahuba Mountain, and later reported the incident to Pershing County Sheriff's Office. After his seemingly random shooting at Ray Horn, Rogers quickly realized that the Strode's truck was running low on gas. Parked along the side of the road, 
Rogers was spotted by a highway maintenance worker who had no idea the dark deeds that Rogers had just committed. The kind maintenance worker offered him assistance in getting more gas for his truck. Rogers gratefully accepted and rode with him to a local gas station. There he purchased a full gas canister and had the maintenance worker drive him back to where the Strode's truck was abandoned. The maintenance worker had unknowingly just helped a murderer make a great escape. Rogers then filled the truck's tank so he could leave Pershing County as quickly as possible. On December 3rd, 1980, the day after the Mahuba murders, Emery and Mary Strode's only son, Frank, was returning to his home on his parents' property after being out of town on a Thanksgiving trip. Frank and his wife, Linda, were completely unaware of the horrors that were ahead of them as they pulled into Emery and Mary's empty driveway. As they entered Frank's parents' home in the quaint, isolated part of Pershing County, they knew right away that something was wrong. Emery's missing blue truck was nothing out of the ordinary, but the house seemed eerily off. The couple poked around the property until they came across the gruesome scene left in the master bedroom. Frank immediately called 911, and Pershing County deputies were sent to the Strode residence. Officers discovered that Emery Strode had been shot a total of three times and stabbed twice with a butcher's knife that had been left lodged in his chest. One of the bullets shot at Emery had hit his pocket watch that was on him at the time of the attack, stopping the time at 1 p.m., the time he was assumed to have been killed. It did not take long for deputies to put together the information they gathered regarding a strange man who spoke of pyramids and Mount Olympus and the mysterious murders of Emery, Mary, and Miriam. Multiple witnesses had reported a stranger passing through the Mahuba area with an inverted pyramid drawn on his pant leg, speaking of outrageous occurrences in different worlds. People all over Pershing County were on the lookout for a man who went by a variety of different names, but was nonetheless the sole suspect in the Mahuba murders. It wasn't until January 4th, 1981, that police were finally able to locate Mark David Rogers. Across the United States, on the Interstate 10 in the Florida Panhandle, a motorist made a frantic 911 call. In a nervous hurry, the motorist described the scene in front of him on the interstate. A scrawny, psychotic-looking young man had run out into the middle of traffic. A car being driven by an elderly couple managed to slow down just enough to narrowly avoid striking the young man with their vehicle. The young man seemed furious that the car had stopped in time. In a fit of rage, the young man propelled himself toward the elderly couple's vehicle. He scrambled frantically to get from the hood to the roof and down to the bumper where he then held on tightly to the luggage that was strapped there. Traffic around the scene came to a stop and all of the bystanders waited impatiently for local law enforcement to arrive. Once in police custody, officers struggled to get a straight answer out of the young man. 
he had given them a variety of different names. T.B. Fox, Mark Joseph Haydock, and finally, Mark James Rogers. It was with these names that the authorities realized they had found the man wanted for killing three people all the way in Nevada months earlier. At his trial, Rogers' defense team presented testimonies from several psychological expert witnesses, almost all of whom indicated that Rogers was a paranoid schizophrenic at the time of his evaluation. The psychological experts also asserted that Rogers' behavior at the time of the murders would have been consistent with psychotic paranoid delusions, schizophrenia, and psychosis. However, there was one expert witness whose opinion differed significantly from everyone else. He stated that it was well known that Rogers was an aspiring actor who had come to Nevada from Hollywood. For all the court knew, Rogers very well could have been faking his symptoms. Regardless of whether or not Rogers had been putting on a show for investigators, he was nonetheless charged with three counts of murder, a count of attempted murder in a separate shooting, and a count of grand larceny for the theft of the murder victim's truck. His attorney argued intensely against the death penalty, stating that they had to find Mark not guilty by reason of insanity. The jury did not listen and Mark David Rogers was given the death penalty in 1985 by the Supreme Court of Nevada. To this day, it isn't clear why Rogers decided to kill the Strodes family. But whatever his motive had been, if he even had one, Mark David Rogers would never again see the light of day for the murders of Emery and Mary Strode and their daughter, Miriam Treadwell. <laughs> 